Uh, we're back this week, Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 31, and we'll uh, be looking at the end of the chapter uh, 4 and then into chapter 5. Title of the message, A Proper Response to God's Authority. Uh, we at Legacy Baptist Church are a church of people who have an appreciation for the message of God's Word. We hold God's Word to be inerrant, meaning it does not have error, infallible, which means it is right in every area to which it touches and perpetually preserves. So God has preserved His Word through every age and generation. We regard God's Word as the final authority and ultimate authority for all things pertaining to life and godliness And this is who we are as a church. This is why you're here. This is uh, what you believe. But as we consider this mindset, we seem often, as a group, not just as Legacy Baptist Church, but if we could broaden it to the, 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 the church as a whole, all who would claim loyalty to the infallible an inerrant, preserved word of God is the final authority of all things pertaining to life and godliness, we seem often to be far better at knowing this authority than necessarily properly responding to this authority. And this is human nature. It's like this in every area of life, right? You know the laws of the road better than you respond to the laws of the road. You know the, the expectations of civil government better than you perhaps respond. And, and again, I'm overgeneralizing. Maybe you say, well, I, I, I obey them, and I, I hope you do. You ought to obey the laws and, and the expectations placed over you. But by human nature, we are far better at knowing what's expected of us than doing what's expected of us, than responding to that authority. We know God is our authority. We know that he created all things. We know that his word is true. We know these things. We believe these things. We stand upon this. We'll, we'll state it. We'll, we will assert it. But are we acting like it? How do we respond to God's authority? See, because this response to God's authority makes all the difference, doesn't it? It's never enough just to know what is right. We must Do what is right. It cannot be enough to have God's word in our heads. We need God's word in our hearts as we think of the analogy. And today we're going to look at the word of God in a passage that considers Christ's authority. We're going to begin with Jesus Christ um, dealing with Simon Peter on a familial level. And then he's going to get into a a much deeper interaction with Simon Peter. And then we're going to understand or or see how Peter responds to all of the shows, all of the evidences, the manifestations of Christ's authority. But first, the text goes, goes goes to great lengths to establish Christ's authority, the depth of that authority. And we pick up in... Um, verse 30, 31 of chapter 4, where the scriptures tell us this. But he passing through the midst of, the, of, him, of them went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath day. So we pick up where we left off last time, a reminder since it has been a while. Um, Jesus announced himself in Nazareth to be the Messiah. He stated that the nation would reject him for it in the same way that they rejected Elisha and Elijah 
uh, he says, you, you are like your fathers, you are going to reject me. Uh, he, he told them that because they were going to reject him, the gospel would be taken to the Gentile world. And the people of Nazareth were incensed. They were angry at this. And so they sought to throw him over the cliff upon which Nazareth was built. And he passed through the midst of them and he went his way and he went to a city of Galilee called Capernaum. And it says that he taught them on the Sabbath days. So by implication, he was there for more than one week. He passed through, he went, and as he taught on the Sabbath day in Nazareth, and he was nearly killed for it, because he knew that they would reject him. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Now he goes to Capernaum, and he is going to teach there, and he's teaching there for several weeks, which tells us from the outset that at least to some degree, they have received his ministry better than Nazareth did. We continue in verse 32, and the text tells us, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. That word there, power, exousia, meaning authority. It came forth, and they recognized the authority. Now remember, as we talked about the book of Luke, the epistle of Luke, Luke, the gospel of Luke, Luke truly highlights the authority of Christ. So much of what Luke teaches is about Christ's authority. If we were, in John, we know the theme to be belief and unbelief. Matthew, we know the theme to be particularly trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is Messiah. Luke is showing you that Christ has authority. That's one of his purposes. That's one of his themes, authority. And they are astonished at Jesus' words because his words have power. His words have authority. He teaches in the synagogues in Capernaum. They're astonished. They link the astonishment not necessarily with what is said, but with the power with which it goes out. And you all have experienced this, where, uh, where the word of God goes forth, where somebody preaches and that preaching has authority. You feel conviction. That's not the authority of the man. It's the authority of the word because the word has the authority of God behind it. You have perhaps seen others respond to this authority in your own life. You've seen perhaps the conviction on the face of someone as you've told them the gospel. I've told you before about Dean Boyd. He was, I think, 98 years old when I used to interact with him down in Florida. I went to an assisted living center and Dean Boyd was a man. He'd been a college professor and I visited him every week and from time to time, the Holy Spirit would open the door for me to share the gospel with him, and you could just see, you could see the conviction in his eyes. You could see that he understood that what was being said, that the gospel had authority. Perhaps you've seen the effect of the word of God on a believer when the believer's walking contrary to sound doctrine, and you, you've seen the preaching of the word of God or, or, or the, the speaking individually about the word of God touch their hearts, pierce their hearts. Maybe you've, can, I hope you have at some point, experienced this even in your own life. And this was the idea here. The power that followed the words of Christ were, were, were no less than the power, was no less than the power of divine truth. And the remainder of Luke 4 goes out of his way to establish the reality that Jesus' authority was, however, his own. So he, he spoke the word of God, and, and, and any of us can, can have that same authority, where we speak the word of God, and because the word of God has authority and power, it can go forth with authority and power, and, and it can change lives. But Jesus is God. 
And we're going to see that his authority is not just in his words, but also in himself, in his actions. He has authority not just to speak, but he has authority over the body, over the spirit. He has authority over, over the, the whole of the creation. And so we are in this synagogue where Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath day. And verses 33 and 34 tell us, In the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. In the very synagogue in Capernaum, there was a man who was possessed with a demon. Now, Capernaum, he, Jesus would have been here on the Sabbath day. Capernaum is where Peter, Andrew, James, and John live. They're fishermen in Capernaum. What we understand by this then is as good Jews, they would have been there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They would have been worshiping in the synagogue because every Jewish man did. And so they would have been there. They would have seen this. Keep that tucked into the back of your mind here as we continue. The demon, it would seem, caused this man to act with madness. He is possessed with a demon, and this demon is making him act with madness. We'll see this semi-regularly throughout the book of Luke and throughout the Gospels, um, that various actions and illnesses are attributed to demonic forces. And we would perhaps wonder, and many people have in commentaries and throughout the ages, if this was truly a case of demonic influence or whether or not the people just didn't understand madness, mental illness, they didn't understand disease, and so they attributed it to demons when actually it was other causes. But uh, this is not the case for a couple of reasons. The first reason being that the Bible is not just written by men. The Bible is written by inspiration of God. And so we know as the Word of God, and there's no reason to assume here that these are uh, sometimes the Bible gives accounts, other people speaking, and what they say is wrong. We see this a great deal in Job, right? Job's miserable comforters. They are saying things, and those things are in the Bible as if they're teaching, but when we realize they're coming from the mouth of a man, they're quotations, we need to understand that not everything that's said in the book of Job is God, is God's teaching. And when we went through the book of Job, we noticed that, that in each of those chapters, there are spiritual errors those spiritual errors are not intended to teach us to be wrong spiritually. They're intended for us to understand the mindset of Job's comforters so that when God speaks up in Job 38 and following, we can see the contrast between God's word and man's word. But here we don't see that. This is the Bible saying this man was possessed with a demon. And the other... Uh, element that we find that helps us understand this is that we will see many men and women who have diseases that are not attributed to demonic forces. And if every disease were attributed to demonic forces, then every disease in the Bible, it should mention demons. It should mention when Jesus heals them that he cast out a demon, but it doesn't. In only certain cases, diseases and madness came by demonic forces. And so that should lend us to understand that demonic forces were active in certain diseases and certain madness, but not in every disease. So to today, I believe we find the same thing. There are many diseases that are just disease. And yet as we think of some diseases, some mental illness, it would not be far-fetched for us to understand demonic influence as a part of that. So this man is plagued with a demon and this demon has made him mad. 
And by mad, that means crazy, not angry. He probably was angry too, but crazy. He's acting crazy. He's acting with madness. And the demon cries out, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. First question we ask is, who is them? Let us alone. We would assume them to be the demonic realm. It's possible that there were multiple demons in this man, as we see uh, the example later on in the book of Luke of Legion, where Legion says we are many, and there were many demons in this man. And so it's possible that he had many demons within him, or it's possible that this demon is simply speaking for the entirety of the demonic realm, the entirety of those demons that have been loosed to terrorize and torment men and women in the world. And Jesus came into the world with the authority over this demonic realm, over the spirit realm. And so this demon is petitioning Jesus as God to leave him alone. Now this phrase, what have we to do with thee, is one commonly found in the Old Testament, uh, not so commonly found in the New Testament, but uh, several times we see it. The implication of the statement is um, that the person in question, in this case Jesus, has no business with them. What business do you have with me, is kind of the idea here. What, what, what have I to do with thee? What business do you have with me? You have no lot in this matter. We don't really understand why from this particular passage, but if we study all of the passages where demonic elements interact with Jesus, we find that these disobedient angels had been given uh, rather open authority over the material world. And it would seem as though this demon regarded Jesus' intervention, Jesus casting out these demons, uh, this intervention as sort of an intrusion upon their privilege. In the same way that some of you ladies might take offense uh, if someone else comes and takes over your kitchen, or men, you might struggle if somebody came into your garage and started rearranging it. You'd come in and you'd say, excuse me, sir, what have you to do with this? This is not your privilege. This is not your realm. This is not your place. You have no authority here. What are you doing? That's kind of the, the idea here. The, the, the demon says, look, you, you don't have, well, why are you here encroaching upon our realm? Why are you bothering us? Now, he's not denying that Jesus has the authority. What he's saying is, why are you coming in now and exercising your authority? Why are you bothering us now? And he asks if Jesus has come to destroy them. Have you come to destroy us? This question being asked on the basis of, what the, of, of who the demon understood Jesus to be, the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. You are God in flesh. You have authority over us. You will one day destroy us. Are you come to destroy us now? And as we would go to some parallel passages, uh, the demon might ask, are you here to destroy us before the time? The time where all of them will be judged. As some are in, in chains in the bottomless pit, others are allowed to freely roam. Are you here to destroy us before the time? We'll see that question asked when we get to Legion in a little while. So he's asking, are you here to destroy us now? Are you here to speed up your plans? You're, you are the Holy One of God. You are set aside for a particular purpose. You have authority. Are you exercising that authority now? For this time, they're free to roam, maim, destroy. And Jesus responds in verse 35, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him into, in the midst, 
He came out of him and heard him not. So Jesus doesn't really respond. He's not interested in bantering with the demons. He's not going to argue with him. He says, shut your mouth, hold your peace, come out of that man. And when he does so, obviously the demon obeys because Jesus has power over the spiritual. Jesus Christ has power over the spirit realm, angels and demons. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what's being demonstrated here. For all of the, the, the demon's anger and rage and indignity, he has no ability to resist Christ's authority. So he comes out of him, as Jesus said. And the text specifies that as he came out of him, he threw the man into the midst, into the middle of the, of, of the area, but he did not hurt him. And as we, we look at this, we find throughout history that demons, when they are cast out of men, have a tendency to try to destroy the vessel as they leave it, to, to hurt the vessel, to hurt the person. And yet in this case, as Christ had exercised such authority over him, the demon was not given authority to hurt him as he came out of him and the demon leaves without further incident. We continue in verses 36 and 37, and they were all amazed and spake among themselves saying, what a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits and they come out and the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. By way of response, the people are amazed. Remember, in Nazareth, they tried to kill him for his authority. Here, the people are amazed. What word, what power is this? What authority does he have that even the demons listen to him? And they attribute to Jesus both authority and power to command the demons. His fame spreads throughout all of Galilee. They are, they are well receiving his authority here. But his demonstration of authority does not stop there. It continues not just with the spiritual, but also the physical. And, and see this. See what Luke is doing here. He establishes Jesus' authority over the spirit realm, right? Now he establishes Jesus' authority over the physical realm. Verse 38. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. So Simon possibly sees this. Simon is, it's a Sabbath day. Simon's here. Uh, he sees this, perhaps. He sees the demon cast out, and he has an idea. His mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Surely, if Jesus can command the demons, maybe Jesus can heal her as well. He enters into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother, so Simon is a married man, and we know um, that from several portions of Scripture. Uh, this one um, certainly makes it very clear. Is taken with a great fever, and they beseech him for her. Please heal my mother-in-law, my wife's mother. This Simon is the one that's best known to us by the name of Peter. His actual name is Simon Barjona. Bar being a Hebrew word which speaks of lineage. Um, we might translate it Simon son of Jonah. So Jonah would have been Simon's father. And there are several cultures in the world that use a variation of the father's name as the surname. So each generation has a different surname based upon the father's name, particularly Russian culture we know does this. It was Jesus himself who gave Simon the name Peter, a word meaning rock, and given to him by Jesus because Jesus says Peter would be the rock upon which he would found his church. Peter then has this Greek name of tremendous significance. His Hebrew name is Peter, his Greek name, I mean, is Simon. His Greek name is Peter, given by Jesus 
And so he assumes this name, but among the Jews, having a Greek name would not have been very helpful for him. And so most of these men had a Greek name and they had a Hebrew name, but he didn't want to go by Simon anymore. So he took his Greek name, Peter, which means rock, and he converted it to Hebrew, which is Cephas, which is also the word for rock or pebble or stone. And so he took on the name Cephas when he was among the Jews, which means rock, and he was Peter among the Gentiles, which means rock, though his birth name was Simon Barjona. And so if you see Simon Barjona, Cephas, or Peter, or Simon Peter, they're all the same man, unless it's a different Simon, such as Simon the Sorcerer, but you'll know when those designations come about. So Jesus is in Capernaum. He leaves the synagogue. He enters into the house of Simon, whose mother-in-law was very sick with a great fever. From John 1, we know that Jesus had already been known to Simon. Jesus, uh, Andrew had been one of John the Baptist's followers, saw Jesus, believed in Jesus, went and told people, went and got his brother. Andrew is actually credited with finding Simon and saying, we found the Messiah. And so knowing this already, Jesus is or Simon is familiar with Jesus. Now he's seen Jesus cast out a demon. And here he beseeches Jesus for his mother-in-law. Verse 39, And he, that's Jesus, stood over her, Simon's mother-in-law, and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Jesus rebukes the fever in his authority. So it's the authority of Jesus Christ rebuking the fever and the fever leaves. She arises and ministers unto them. The implication being that she began to play the part of the hostess. The fever leaves. She feels better. She gets up. She says, can I get you anything to drink? And she ministers unto them. A sure sign that she was feeling much better. So Jesus has authority. He has authority over the demonic realm. Cast out a demon, the demon leaves. He has authority over the physical realm rebukes a fever, and the fever leaves. And, of course, the fever was just a symptom, right? Jesus healed her disease, her illness. Whatever it was, it was healed. And this event was a kind of snowball of sorts. We read in verses 40 and 41, Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them, and the devils... And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. So uh, until the darkness came upon them, Jesus was busy now. Physically healing, spiritually healing. Casting out illness, casting out demons. Not every illness was demonically induced. Illnesses, people being healed, demons being cast out. These, de these demons, when they would seek to attribute him as Christ, the Son of God, he would silence them. The question always arises, why? Why silence the demons? Uh, the most common theory is that Jesus sought to reveal his authority over them, but not by any means to give any indication that he was operating with them. It's uh, kind of one of those things that if you have somebody with a bad testimony, and uh, we, we see this all the time in the political arena, right? that if a person is a bad person or has a bad testimony and he endorses a candidate, that candidate is quick to repudiate that endorsement, right? I don't want their endorsement. Why? Because you don't want it to, it to seem as though you're agreeing with their cause 
or you're agreeing with their wickedness by, endorse, by accepting their endorsement. And that's kind of the idea as we would see it perhaps here. It's just a theory. I don't know. I'm not fully satisfied, but I, it's the best one that, that I've, I've heard of um, as far as many of these instances go where, where Jesus perhaps does not want the, if we could say it this way, the endorsement of the demonic realm, lest others think that somehow there's an association between them, so he silences them. Much better to have the word of God coming from the lips of those who have been healed or from his than the lips of demons. While their hasty acknowledgement to us is proof of Jesus' deity, it could also be perceived as a, as a, a proof of collusion or a proof of of working together between himself and the demonic realm. And this is perhaps why Jesus sought to silence them from acknowledging him. If you have a different theory, I'd love to hear it sometime. And um, I don't, it's not explicitly stated in Scripture with the exception of a few rare times where we find the reason why Jesus silences the demon. Continuing, hastening on here, verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he, that's Jesus, departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him, and he came and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogue of Galilee, synagogues of Galilee. So the next day Jesus departs to a desert place, but the people follow him. They beg him to stay. No doubt it would have been a great encouragement to our Lord following the terrible reception in Nazareth. In Nazareth, they're trying to throw him over a cliff. In Capernaum, they're begging him to remain. But he can't because he's got work to do. He has to go all throughout Galilee preaching the gospel. He is sent to preach the kingdom to all those cities and they need to hear it. What a beautiful contrast though, is it not painted between Capernaum and Nazareth? One was so unbelieving that Jesus could not even do works among them. The other, though perhaps they all did not believe, at least had enough faith, enough reception of Christ to benefit from his ministry. This ends the chapter, but not our consideration today. So we've seen this great parallel. Jesus Christ, his authority and his power over the spirit realm and over the physical realm. We continue now in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, the chapter breaks are not divinely inspired. It, it, the, the flow of the text is sometimes hindered by verse breaks and chapter breaks. They're there and it's good because we can reference things easier. But sometimes they can hinder our comprehension. So I would encourage you, don't just stop at the end of a chapter. Always see what's next and see if the thought truly ends. Or if maybe next time you're reading, you need to back up a little bit so you can get the whole thought as you continue into the next chapter. So chapter 5, verse 1. And think of this in the same context, in the same realm. Yes, he's gone through Galilee now preaching, but we, we find ourselves um, back in, in the area of Capernaum. And the scriptures tell us it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. The lake of Gennesaret is one of several names for the lake that would probably be best known to us as the Sea of Galilee. It was the central nervous system of the region in many ways. Here it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. It's most commonly called the Sea of Galilee. It's also called in John 21 the Sea of Tiberias. And they're all the same thing. They're all the Sea of Galilee. Tiberius was one of the Roman emperors. He had a, a city built for him called Tiberius on the southwest side of Galilee. And so in Rome, it was called the Sea of Tiberius because it was the name, named after the, the Caesar. 
but it was the Sea of Galilee in the region, and it was Gennesaret being a region round about, and so it would also be called the Lake of Gennesaret. So Jesus is by this lake, and the people are pressing upon him to hear him teach. You might imagine uh, the press upon this man with miraculous healing power. They would all be vying to get closer. I think of my little girls and Benjamin when I think of this. Uh, when, when they're, I don't know if, if you've experienced this when you, were, uh, when you had little kids, but when you're reading a book and they want to see the pictures, and so they all just keep creeping in to where you're kind of peeking over just to see the words, and the uh, kids can't see because the other kids are in the way, and you have to say, okay, everybody back up. You can see the book just as well from back here as here. And, and they do the same thing with a television or a computer. They all just they creep in, creep in, creep in, creep in, until they're, they're so close to the screening, so crowded. You don't need that back up a little bit. You know, it's fine. You can see it from back here just as well. And that's kind of the idea that we see here. The people just keep pressing closer, closer. Everyone's vying to get closer, and so these people get in front of these people, and then these people get in front of these people, and so it's just pushing him in toward the sea, and he's got nowhere to go. He's, his heels are backed up to the water, and these people are pressing him. And so we read in verses um, 2 and 3, they saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. Is this the same Simon? Well, it has to be the same Simon. The scriptures would have told us if it wasn't the same Simon. We have from chapter 4, this is Simon. Simon is introduced to us. Now we have Simon referenced again. Without, without question, the scriptures would, inter, would, would have changed the reference, would have told us if it were a different Simon. This is the same Simon. And so Simon is there, and he's one of the men that are washing these nets. They're washing them because they just come in from the sea they're, they're finished with their fishing. He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. So he asks, hey, could you, could you, could you push your boat out a little bit? Just give me a little bit of space here so that I can teach them. They can press as far as they want toward the water, and then the water will stop them, and I've got a little bit of distance here. I've got a little bit of breathing room. He does so. And he teaches them. Uh, naturally, Simon uh, agrees. He does this. We learn from Matthew 4, a parallel passage, that Simon and Andrew were both in the boat. And that the other boat, there were two boats there, right? One of the ships was Simon and Andrew's. Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. The other ship was with, had James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they were fishing with their father, Zebedee. And so James and John are in one boat, um, Andrew and Simon Peter are in the other boat. Christ is in Simon's boat and he preaches this message. Verse 4 says, Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught, for some fish. Now they had just finished fishing after a long night. Jesus says, launch out into the deep area, put down your nets for some fish. Notice Simon's response in verse 5. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Master, we're fishermen. We've tried this. I just want you to know we've toiled all night. We're washing our nets. There was nothing in them. We found nothing. But... I'll obey. 
Peter has his doubts here. Simon has his doubts. He has no reason to expect anything would happen. Every element of understanding, perception, and precedent would suggest that they will let down their nets and nothing will happen. They're not even at the best time to fish anymore, right? They would go out during the best time of day to fish. Get the fish. It's no longer the best time of day. They've already tried all night. Nothing's happening. His faith is not perfect here. But he says, nevertheless, I'll do it. I'll obey. He would probably uh, be foolish, having seen Jesus command the demons, having seen Jesus command the fever, to not obey Jesus himself. Verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, this would be James and John in the other boat, which were in the other ship, and they, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled the ships so that they began to sink. The ships were so full of fish that they began to sink. Not just theirs, but also the sons of Zebedee. What, a, what an experience. What a circumstance. And now we see Simon's response. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of fishes which they had taken. Simon's response is what we will particularly contemplate today. We've got a few more verses to cover before I get into application. When Peter saw the fish in the boat, he doesn't see dollar signs and begin to think of establishing the Jesus and Simon fishing company. He didn't come up and say, hey, Jesus, just wanted to thank you for those fish. He came up to Jesus, seeing the fish in the net, and he fell down at Jesus' knees, and he said, depart from me, because I'm a sinful man. Upon this final mark of Jesus' authority, Peter was finally overcome with his unworthiness. Here was a man who had cast out demons, who had cast out fevers, and who could command fish to swim into a net. Indeed, for all of this authority, Jesus came not demanding men to obey Him, not compelling men to obey Him by external stimulus, but rather asking for that obedience. And Simon says, I would be a fool not to fall down at this man's feet. I would be a fool not to recognize the authority that is before me. Simon was going to give him that which was due to him. He would position himself very much like the fish in the net. Well, if the demons listen to you, Jesus, and bow before your authority, if the fever listens to you and bows before your authority, if the fish listen to you and bow before your authority, I'm going to bow before your authority. I'm going to listen to you. I am yours because you're worthy. So overcome was he with this greatness that he could not even bear the thought of Jesus being in his most unworthy company. Jesus responds in verses 10 and 11. Excuse me. Jesus is, yeah, he, he does effectively. Uh, verse 10, in verse 11. In verse 10 it says, And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon here, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all and followed him. They being Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Parallel passages tell us James and John forsook their father, 
left the boat and the nets with their father, Zebedee, and followed Jesus. However, as James, John, and Andrew are marveling at this, notice Jesus says specifically to Simon. And we know this, not only does it say he said unto Simon, but then look at the pronoun, thou. In our King James Bible, when we see thee and thou, it's first or second person singular, speaking to one person. And when we see you, your, and ye, it's second person plural, speaking to multiple. Jesus is not speaking to all four of them. He's speaking to Simon directly here. Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. In this case, he says, Simon, you will catch men. Just as Simon had devoted his time to casting nets that might bring in some fish, so too now Simon would go out into the world casting the net of the gospel to everyone and seeing who might be brought in to the gospel. Having seen this wonderful work, Peter, Andrew, James, and John bring their ships to land, forsake all, and follow Jesus. And it's a wonderful passage through which I'm going to give you three applications this morning. As we consider this scenario, our first point is this. You may not always have full faith in the results, but at least have faith in the source. I, I don't have too much. There's not a lot in my heart as I think of this body of believers that concerns me about your knowledge of God's authority. That you know that this book has authority. That you know that this book is true. Now there might be Doubts, particularly in, in the hearts of some of our young people that will have to work out through time and circumstance. But as a whole, our body of believers understands this book to be what it is, the true and living word of God that is profitable unto doctrine, and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness. But that doesn't mean you always believe it, though you know it's worth believing And this is an important point, especially if you're kind of an all-or-nothing type person. Sometimes we feel like if we have any doubts about something, that we need to relieve those doubts before we can be justified in doing it, or before God can be pleased with our action. There are many things that God calls upon his people to do that could lend themselves unto doubts. God calls the believer to give of the first of his increase to the Lord. That means the first of your paycheck ought to go to God, ought to go to the work of the ministry, ought to go to to the service of the Lord. The Bible says that. You can't argue it. But it's a difficult step, especially if you're on a tight budget. Or if you've just started earning money and it's exciting to you, right? And you, you just give, give some of it away. I just got some. God calls the believer to evangelize the lost. That's a tough thing to do. Talk to people about Christ. Even in a culture that's generally willing to listen. God calls the believer to forgive others without condition. It's a hard thing to do when people have wronged you, to forgive others unconditionally, especially if you've been deeply hurt. And in each context of life where God would ask us to take a step forward, there can be doubts as to whether or not that step will produce any results. See, Lord, you're telling me that I need to give the first fruits of my increase. You're telling me that I need to forgive that person who doesn't deserve it or would ever ask for it. You're telling me that I need to fill in the blank. But I don't know that that's in my best interest. 
I don't know that it's going to work out the way you actually say it is. You say, if I do these things, that I'll be blessed. You say, if I do these things, that there will be results. But you know what? I don't know that I believe it. I, I think I'd rather stay safe here. There are doubts. And in these various contexts of life, these doubts can lead to a misplaced guilt that would seek to convince us that if we cannot wholesale believe something, then we should just not act at all. And that even if we did, it would fail to produce, produce the results. But you know, that's not how it works. Peter didn't, he wasn't fully convinced that throwing his net into the deep water would do anything. As a matter of fact, he says, look, Jesus, we fished all night. But then what did he say? God, I don't believe it, but nevertheless, at your word, I'm going to do it. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. See, obedience is a kernel of faith, but it has to grow. You're not always going to believe, fully be fully persuaded with everything you read in the Bible. And it's not because you shouldn't be, you ought to be, but you're human. But don't let the fact that you are not fully persuaded in the results God has promised keep you from obedience. Because if you obey, you will find those results and then you'll become fully persuaded. And then the next time you read something in the Word of God, you say, look, every time I've ever stepped out in faith and done what God has asked me to do, I found the results He's promised, so this time I am fully persuaded and I'm going to go at it. And that is where God can use you. That is where the great men that you can read about in Christian biographies, that's where they came from. They didn't come from a life of 100% faith every moment of every day for, since the moment they believed. They said, look, if God's word says it, I'm going to do it. And then it grew into, if God's word says it, then I believe it with all my heart. So I'm not convinced that I'm not yet fully persuaded in my heart that if I give the first fruits, God will bless it, so I'm just not going to do it. Well, can I encourage you to go the other way? I'm not yet fully convinced, but since God's word says it, I'm just going to, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on this one. I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt that if I forgive that person, even though they don't deserve it, that, that whether it's better for me or not, you know what, I'm just going to give God the benefit of the doubt and I'm just going to obey. Nevertheless, I'm not convinced, Lord, that forgiving that person is, is going to make me happier or is going to make the situation better. Nevertheless, Lord, at thy word, I will do it. I'm not convinced that if I tell others about Christ that there will be any sort of blessing or any sort of effect. Nevertheless, Lord, at thy word, I will let down that net. The testimony of Simon Peter was one where he had his doubts. He'd fished all night. Time for fishing was past. There was no reason for him to believe that he'd catch any fish. And it's not to say he did have any faith that he would catch fish when he let down that net. As a matter of fact, if you kind of read between the lines, he doesn't expect anything. But he obeyed. Can we not do the same? Your obedience to the commands of Scripture do not need to hinge entirely upon your full persuasion that what God promised will come to pass. Prove him. Try him. And see if you won't find him. If you obey him. 
It's true that without question, God rewards faith. In fact, one of the most definitive verses on faith in the Bible is Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The essence of faith is being convinced that if we see that the Lord is, that he has authority, that he has the power, and that if I will diligently seek him, I will be rewarded for it. But for some, you aren't fully persuaded yet. And that is kind of where Peter was. But even if you're not fully persuaded, young person, even if you're not fully persuaded that God's way is the way, I, I, I pray that every young person in this room will choose to follow the Lord with all their heart. But even if you're not there, you're not fully persuaded, you're busy loving life and the things that this world has to offer. Can I encourage you to step out in faith and obey the word of God and see if God will not be found of you? Let's at least be at the place in our lives where we say, God, I don't really know if there will be results, but nevertheless, at thy word, I will do as your word has asked. What command of God's word have you resisted doing because you weren't fully convinced of the results that were promised? Yeah, I know God has told me to do that, but I just, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's what's best for me. Okay, don't assume it's not what's best for you, but will you just obey? Will you see the authority of the one who has cast out demons, the authority of the one who has healed diseases, and say, you know, I don't know about this results promise that you've got here, God, but you have authority. And so I'm just going to do what I'm told. I'm just going to do what I'm told. May I encourage you to take that step whether or not you believe the promises. And then I guarantee you, you'll believe it. If you take the step, you will see it. You'll believe it. And then next time it won't even be a question. The only question will be, am I willing? Because I know the promises are there. I know the blessings are there. There's an interesting verse in the Proverbs that lends itself to our edification this morning. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 3 says this. Commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. You know, so many times we expect our thoughts, we, we demand that our thoughts be established before we'll commit our works to the Lord. Well, until I'm fully convinced of something, I'm just not going to do it. Until I fully believe something, I'm not going to do it. Until I'm fully persuaded that something is what it is, I'm just not going to do it. Well, you know, Proverbs 16.3 says sometimes you have to commit your works to the Lord and then that will establish your thoughts. Sometimes you have to start with obedience and then let your mind follow. Let your full persuasion follow. Sometimes you've just got to step up and say, by your grace, God, I'm going to do what the Bible says. And if you are God, then, you, then there will be results. I don't, I don't know if there's going to be results, but if you are who you say you are and, you, and your word is what it says it is, then I'm just going to do what it says and let's see what happens. And I guarantee you, if you do it, God will be found of you. You will never be disappointed. We've already mentioned it in our prayer this morning, Psalm 37, 25. We've memorized it together. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. There's a man who says, I have lived a long time now, and I can tell you that when you do it God's way, it works out the way God has promised, and it is what's best. Point number two. First point. 
you may not always have full faith in the results, but at least have faith in the source. At least trust that God has the authority that you'll obey him. Secondly, when confronted with God's authority, look, humility is the only proper response. The title of the sermon is A Proper Response to God's Authority. We spend a great deal of time considering the concepts of humility and faith at Legacy Baptist Church. And we do so because humility and faith are all over the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Just as Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God, so too we find that humility is the key that unlocks the door to God honoring us. 1 Peter 5.5-6 Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Even if you're not doing everything that the Lord would have you to do, even if you're working on becoming fully persuaded, even if you're not doing a great, even if you have areas of your life that are not submitted to Christ, there is a natural grace that comes to you if you will be humble. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself today with the promise and expectation of exaltation tomorrow. He says the same thing, or the scriptures say the same thing, by the way, in Proverbs 3, 34, and James 4, 6. That might, I wonder if that's supposed to be Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. Let me double check here. Nope, 34 is correct. Proverbs 3.34 and James 4.6 have the same message. And then Jesus teaches us in Matthew 23.12, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Simon was given a tremendous gift, and it was for him to decide how to respond to this gift that God had given him. The essence of the proper response to God's goodness in our lives is to understand our unworthiness. It's not to say, well, finally God gave me what I, what's due to me. When you're there, you'll understand that when a tremendous blessing has come your way and you see the hand of God all over it, the compulsion in your heart will be to bow your heart and say, God, I'm so unworthy of this. You are so good to me. God owes you nothing. Anything that you could do for God would not even begin to make up for what you owe Him and would not begin to compare to all that He has done for you. So we dare not be tempted to see God's blessings upon our lives as earned, merited. That we are somehow worthy of them. And if we're rightly related to God and our mindset is properly aligned with an understanding of who he is and what he has done for us, then we will have this kind of a response. The kind of response Simon Peter had. Depart from me, Lord. I'm not worthy of this. Go put your blessings on someone who's worthy because I'm sure not. We can be grateful. We will be grateful. But we certainly won't feel worthy. Peter saw himself as unworthy of God's blessings, but he also even saw himself unworthy of God's presence. And and the point is this, we dare not take God for granted. We dare not begin to see ourselves as entitled to God's goodness. 
And we can fall into that trap of thinking, God, you owe me something for all that I do for you. I go to church every Sunday. You owe me something. I give to you. You owe me something. I help people. You owe me something. Paul calls it in Romans our reasonable service. And not only those things are reasonable service, but Paul says in Romans 12 that if we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, that is our reasonable service. Our entire body yielded to Christ, that's, that's only reasonable for what He has done for us. Like a child who begins to assume upon his parents' kindness and generosity, so too we can begin to see our God as our personal piggy bank of blessings and advantages. The child who says, well, my parents gave me some money for so, something last week, so I'll go and expect it this week. And then when parents says no, they get angry as if they've been deprived of something. Well, no. You were given a privilege. And when you're not given that privilege the next week, don't get angry. You were blessed above and beyond that which you deserve. Don't get angry when you don't receive that blessing again. We can do that to God. God, I'm a child of God. I expect, I demand blessing. And when we don't get it, when we go through hard times, we become resentful. As if God has somehow wronged us. Because we're going through a hard time. As if we deserve His favor. God's economy works in an inverted scale. Those who walk in pride, King Nebuchadnezzar wrote in Daniel 4.37, God is able to abase. Those who walk in humility will find exaltation before the Lord. So how do we respond to God and His works? I fear too often with too many of us at this time in, in church culture, we respond to God with entitlement or apathy rather than humility. May we de be determined to see ourselves in light of who God truly is and what he has done for us. Third and finally this morning. First, you may not always have full faith in the results, but at least have faith in the source. Secondly, when confronted with God's authority, humility is the only proper response. It will be the natural response if you're rightly related to God. Thirdly, Jesus' call to follow is also a call to serve and to tell. Have you ever noticed the timing of Jesus' call to these disciples? They all knew of his Messiahship. Andrew was there with John. He was a follower of John the Baptist. He told Simon early on. James and John were also followers early on. Then they move on. They go back to fishing. Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. He casts out the demons. Then Jesus gives them this tremendous draught of fishes. I may be assuming, but I feel somewhat safe in assuming that this would have been perhaps their largest scale single catch ever. Maybe not. Maybe it's just my sanctified imagination there. But it was a big catch. Their boats were sinking. Immediately following the biggest material success they'd had, certainly at least in a while, given by Jesus himself, do you see what he asks them to do? He gives them the greatest, perhaps the greatest material success of their lifetime. And then he looks at them and says, leave it all behind. I just gave you all of these fish. Now abandon those fish for me. And they did. 
We don't serve Jesus because of what he can do for us. We serve him because of who he is. Certainly he can do things for us. Perhaps it was going through the mind of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Look, if Jesus can provide fish in a net at his word, then I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to toil anymore. Why should I feel bad about leaving this massive catch of fish when Jesus can just produce those fish whenever he wants? Not to say that he would, but he could. Certainly their ministry will not revolve around fishing for fish. But Jesus has just given them this great material blessing and then he asks them, are you willing to leave this material blessing for me? See, but they recognized his authority. Was it a test? Perhaps it was. Perhaps in your life, Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to put a great material opportunity in your lap and then he's going to say, do you have enough faith to leave it behind for me? Do you have enough faith to walk in the other direction because it's the direction that I'm clearly going to tell you I want you to go even though this direction has opened up. You say, well, the Lord opened a door. Yeah, the Lord opened a door for a great draught of fishes here too. And then what did Jesus say? Leave it and follow me. Yes, God our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes, we who have accepted the gift of salvation are children of God by virtue of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are physical blessings to being a follower of Christ and that he will provide for our needs. But here we see Jesus give the blessing, not for the sake of the blessing itself, but for the proof that he can so that his disciples would know his power and then he asks them to leave it all behind so that they can serve him in that same power without the material blessings. I can do it, Now that you know I can do it, do you trust me enough to follow me and leave it all behind? And if I want you to have it, I'll give it to you. But if I don't, you won't have it. Are you okay with that? Will you follow me? They said, yes, we will leave all and follow you. Have you done the same? Is your house, your cars, your bank account, your job, are they truly submitted Christ? Are you truly serving him, following him, or are you asking him to give you these things while you're following them? You can give God all the credit you want for the things that you have, but if you haven't been following him, it's not his. If they're not his, and you're not following him, it's you. If you are following Christ only for what Christ can do for you, or if you're living with an entitlement mindset as it pertains to following Christ, let me just say, you're missing out. You're missing out on something so much better and so much deeper. You're missing out on a deeper purpose with deeper fulfillment and deeper joy. The joy of being used by God the way he could use you the joy of truly having left all of your personal priorities behind to follow his priorities. Leaving all personal expectations so that you can declare, my soul wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. One final thought as we close. Over the past several weeks we've considered 
of Luke, which was many weeks ago, we've considered three groups of people. The Nazarenes. They rejected Christ entirely and had found no works among them, right? Jesus came. They, they rejected him entirely. He did no miracles among the Nazarenes. Then those in Capernaum who received Christ, his person, found great works done among them. Had their lame healed, had their had demons cast out. And then the, these four disciples who didn't just gladly receive Christ, they embraced Christ and followed him. And they found the greatest blessing in that they got to follow Christ, serve him with the rest of their lives. The Nazarenes missed out entirely. The ones in Capernaum, they got those general blessings, but they they missed out on the deep intimacy that the disciples got. I fear that most of us are at best right here in Capernaum. We're maybe not like the Nazarenes who have rejected Christ outright, and so he does no works among us. We're more like those in Capernaum who, who have accepted him and, they, and, and they, they, they're listening to him and he's doing works among them. But do you know where you could be? You could be over here. You could be one of his true disciples, one of those who is walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living in fullness of joy who is walking moment by moment in communion with the living God, who is serving Him with all of your heart, who lives only to overflow Christ, and who sees the benefits of that in your own life and in the lives of those who you touch. And as Evangelist Stephen said a couple of weeks ago, most most of the Christian world has never even experienced this, has never even touched this, Most of the Christian world says, Lord, thank you for the draught of fishes. Now let me get to the market and sell them. And they don't say, wow, Lord, if you could give me such a draught of fishes, I'll leave all and follow you. Where do you find yourself today? Are you like the Nazarene who just has no time for God? Are you like those in Capernaum who have faith enough to receive but not enough to yield all? Or are you like those disciples with faith that compels complete devotion? By God's grace, we can all be here. Will you be there? Do you trust him enough? Ah, I just don't know if those results are true. Do you, you're really asking me to leave all of the pleasures of flesh and all of these things that I've built up. You're really asking me to yield them. God may not ask you to give them. But he does want you to yield them. God, you really want me there? What, what happens if I lose my job? What happens if, I, what, what happens if I'm miserable? What happens? Well, God says, try me. Try me. See what will see happen. In my life, short though it may be to this point, I can testify of this, and I believe many other, a godly man can do the, and woman can do the same. The only regrets I've had in my life Spiritually speaking, I've never regretted when I've given more. I've only ever regretted when I've given less. I've never regretted when I've yielded more. I've only ever regretted when I've yielded less. 
by God's grace, let's not have those regrets. Let's leave all and follow Christ. Let's pray.